You are listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Margaret Rogers, a clinical mental health counselor from Panama City, Florida, to bring some light to the darkness of the topic of sexual abuse of children. And, and as we prepare for this interview, we'd like to first set the stage for our guests to enter into the next segment by laying some groundwork for the interview. April, when we're taping this, is Child Abuse Month. So it's very appropriate that we are doing this. And in fact, during this month, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has laid out how he thinks this came to happen in the church. And if you have access to the internet and can look at that, I think you'll find that fascinating. In fact, he described the presence of sexual abuse of children uh, in the church as uh, the, the, quote, filth in the church, end quote. But of course, we know this erupted as a problem in the U.S. Catholic Church in the year 2002, when over 4,000 priests had been accused of over 10,000 cases of sexual abuse of minors. It's pretty it's pretty sobering to think about and it is something that's received a lot of talk and discussion and and while the number of clergy abuse issues have really gone down over the last 17 years since it first broke we're still finding new revelations even from from before that time. In February of this year, just a few months ago, uh, the Pope invited the heads of bishop conferences from around the world to discuss this problem which is not only present in the U.S., but also in Chile, Australia, Honduras, Germany, and the Vatican itself. Uh, I saw a wonderful explanation or a comment from a Father Roger Landry. He wrote in the, the March 31st issue of the National Catholic Register that at the meeting in Dallas of the bishops in 2002, that they didn't address one important thing. And he did address the crisis of sexual abuse of minors by clergy as not being so much pedophilia or the sexual abuse of prepubescent boys and girls, nor the abuse of sexually mature teenage girls. Rather, it was mostly uh, same-sex molestation of postpubescent boys. It is. It kind of flies in the face of most of the statistics that we know about child abuse the, the website Darkness to Light, uh, D2.org, does point out that about 1 in 7 girls and 1 in 25 boys are sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And so that works out to about 78% of childhood sexual abuse victims being girls. But yet, in the report that talks about what had happened in the Catholic Church um, leading up to 2002, 81% of the victims were boys. So quite contrary to the, the national norms of all sexual abuse of minors. Because if you, if you look at Protestant churches and public schools, about 70% of the victims are female girls. So the numbers show that there is something much more than pedophilia going on with sexual abuse of minors in the Catholic Church. However, our guest today is an expert and works with prepubescent children far and away. And so we will talk about the, that heinous sin uh, of pedophilia and talk about the children. And one reason we wanted to talk about this is not only because we heard Margaret speak recently, but also because we hear so much in the church about the perpetrators and so little about the victims and what happens to them and what is the hope for them. And, and really one of our hopes, especially during Child Abuse Awareness Month, is to help provide awareness for our listeners. One of the things that we really emphasize a lot in healthcare, you know, in healthcare, we are mandatory reporters of childhood neglect and abuse. And so even if we suspect something, even if we don't have good data, we are by law required to report a suspicion of childhood yes. abuse, physical, sexual, mental, what have you. And it, it puts us into a lot of circumstances where frequently, you know, we hope there's no abuse going on there, but we do have to report that. And so our hope would be that through this interview, we can make our listeners more aware of what to look for and hopefully save someone from this, this terrible outcome. Well, here are a few key facts. Number one, one in 10 U.S. children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And about 400,000 babies born in the U.S. this year will become victims of child sexual abuse unless we do something to stop it. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty scary numbers. One in ten people, ten percent. That is just far too high. And it's it's our hope that, you know, and it it actually kind of leads into the next fact. Identified incidents of child sexual abuse are declining. It's our hope that all abuse is declining, but. Right now, we know that identified incidents are declining. And, and that rate was almost half, uh, a drop of 50% almost between 1993 and 2006. Here's another little factoid. You know, most people think, because it's true, that adult rape is a, a horrible crime. But children are victimized at a much higher rate even than adults. Yes, nearly 70% of all reported sexual assaults occur to children ages 17 and younger. And that's reported ones, and there are so many uh, unnumbered that aren't uh, reported. It's, it's about 2.3 times higher the, the rate of abuse for children and adolescents rather than adults, so it's about twice as high. Uh, so, now I don't know how they came up with this piece of data, but... Only about a third of child sexual abuse incidents are identified. How do they know that? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to think it's it's about people maybe trying to tell their story afterwards. That's one of the things that we know from, from survivors of sexual abuse, that there is a great deal of healing that comes from sharing your story and with the hope of not only bringing those folks who perpetrated these crimes to justice and preventing them from hurting others, but also helping others also to heal from their experiences. And here's another thing I didn't realize, but a lot of people suspect that many cases of reported childhood sexual abuse are fabricated are, by the children, are lies. But false reports only account for 4 to 8% of all child sexual abuse reports. I, I actually found that to be the scariest statistic because I know in the times when I... I encounter that in the clinic or with patients. I say, I sure hope not. But it, it does turn out that 95% of the time our suspicions are correct. So that just emphasizes the importance to me that if there is a suspicion, if you have a reason to suspect that, it's reasonable to report and then let you know the Department of Children's Health Services to sort it out and hopefully protect those children. Now let's look at the children themselves. What are the immediate consequences, not the long-term, but the immediate consequences of being on the receiving end of this kind of abuse. Usually the first sign is emotional and mental health problems like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, even attempted suicide. And then something else that's been reported as true is that these children, when they're away from the perpetrator, will often um, demonstrate uh, sexual behavior or over-sexualized behavior that is completely inappropriate and typically not found in their age group. That, that is one of those things that's always a red flag, that when, when kids are acting very sexually inappropriate, you've got you've to appreciate that this was unfortunately modeled for them in some way. This is not something that kids naturally wonder about, come upon, figure out on their own at young ages. It's unfortunately something that they were exposed to. And these children, not surprisingly, have difficulty in school. They don't do as well with their studies. They have lower test scores. Their memories don't work as well. They're in school less than their, their peers. And they often need special education services more frequently. Unfortunately, another fact of these, these victims is that substance abuse problems frequently follow, and they frequently begin in childhood or adolescence, and that's one of the most common consequences of child sexual abuse. Uh, and in fact, as they're adolescents, they're two to three times more likely to have a, an alcohol use or dependence problem than their peers. We know that delinquency and crime often stemming from substance abuse are more prevalent in adolescents with a history of child sexual abuse as well. Yep, they're twice as likely to run away from home and uh, three to five times as likely to find themselves in the criminal justice system at a young age. And we also know that the risk of teen pregnancy is much higher for girls with a history of abuse as a child. It's an, uh, this fact was astounding that 45% of pregnant teens report a history of child sexual abuse. You know, people talk about wanting to prevent teen pregnancy and, and all of the ways that are antithetical to the dignity of the human person. 
how can maybe we can just all get behind the idea of trying to prevent child sexual abuse, and that could literally prevent maybe half of these folks from having teen pregnancies. I think that is something that people on both sides of the aisle and various legislators, legislatures in Congress could get behind. <coughs> so those are some of the immediate or short-term consequences. But w- what happens long-term? You know, substance abuse problems are three times more likely in female adult survivors. In fact, 40% have a drug abuse problem versus just one-third that number, about 14% of the general population. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge change. And, in fact, mental health problems in general have a, much common, a, a very common correlation to folks with child sexual abuse. We know that adult women who are survivors of sexual abuse as children, they're more than twice as likely as their peers to suffer from depression. And three times as likely to develop psychiatric disorders. And for male survivors, over 70% seek psychological treatment for either substance abuse, thinking about suicide, or attempting suicide. We also know that, unfortunately, obesity and eating disorders are more common in women with a history of child sexual abuse. I mean, women in their mid-20s who were sexually abused as children are four times more likely to have an eating disorder than their same-age peers. And even middle-aged women who were abused are twice as likely to be obese. Childhood sexual abuse is also associated with physical health problems in adulthood. It is theorized that there is a consequence of the substance abuse, mental health issues, and other consequences of the survivors of this abuse. And then adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse as adults more likely to be involved in crime, twice as likely for a property offense, twice as likely for a violent offense. But it's important to realize that these children will not grow up to definitely have these problems. And there are ways to avoid it. And and Margaret's going to talk to us about how to prevent uh, the bad ending to the story and how to create a a happier ending to these stories. So the hope is, after listening to this interview, that you can be more readily able to identify folks who might be a victim, more able to help them, and then also, after victims are identified, encourage them to seek out professional help so that they don't suffer these consequences that are so common to abuse survivors. And before we go to our break, I have a themed medical trivia question for today. It's a little longer question, but the answer is just a name. The question is, starts with this. The most notorious priest associated with the child sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church in the United States when it came to attention in 2002 was a Monsignor John Gagan who was accused by over 130 boys. An auxiliary bishop of Boston in um, 1984, so 18 years before, in 1984 warned Archbishop Bernard Law in a December 7, 1984 letter that Monsignor Gagan should not be sent to another parish because of his, quote, history of homosexual involvement with young boys, end quote. His warning was ignored. Who was this auxiliary bishop who was sent away only two months later from Boston to a Midwest diocese? Stay tuned. We'll be back with our interview after the break. Welcome back on Dr. Doctor, where we are now with our guest, Margaret Rogers. Margaret's worked as a clinical mental health counselor in Panama City, Florida since 2016. She spent two years at the Children's Advocacy Center in Florida using something called trauma-focused CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, and we'll get into that later. But she's counseled child victims of sexual abuse with CBT. She also works as a clinical counselor for a local Catholic school. Margaret loves Jesus, is married to Ryan, and she's mom to three children, Isaac, Silas, and Naomi, who are one to four years old. Ryan is a former Protestant pastor, and Margaret converted to the Catholic faith in April of 2017 after a two-year journey of prayer and research. Ryan's now working as a youth minister at a local Catholic church, and Margaret helps there at St. Dominic's with the parish's home-based small group ministry called Connect Groups. Margaret, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Margaret, at the beginning of the show, we reviewed some of the statistics related to these children and and what happens to them short-term and long-term. But I'm curious, you have dealt with this up close and personal. What do you think are some of the most important statistics that people should know about child sexual abuse? 
sure. Um, I think one of the most important statistics would be that basic one in 10 children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And I know that's a startling statistic, but that's so important because that really helps illustrate the frequency with which this occurs. It's not something rare. It's not something that only occurs in certain segments of the population or in certain, you know, geographic locations or anything like that. It's truly widespread. And um, that one in 10 statistic is vital to know just to understand um, just how prevalent this problem is. You know, sometimes I feel like I live in a bubble when I hear things like this. I mean, that's totally outside my range of uh, experience. One of the other facts that I thought was just shocking is that 30% of instigators of this are family members. Yes, yes. That is that is truly shocking as well. Um, and that follow-on statistic is that 90% of all abuse occurs by someone the child knows and trusts. So 30% by a family member, but then a full 90%, you know, includes, could be a family member. It could also just be a family friend, um, a relative, you know, a distant relative, um, someone basically within that circle of trust or intimacy that the family has. Margaret, how, how does that happen? If, if we know 90% of the perpetrators are known and trusted by the children and parents, how are these heinous acts committed without the parents or other caregivers knowing about it? Well, because um, because the as the, the statistic indicates, um, they're known by the child by the family. Um, perpetrators of child sexual abuse one of the, one of the key things they need in order to abuse a child is access to the child. And so, um, if if a family trusts the person, if they're already in the, the family's you know um, inner circle and everything, if that if the abuser has access to the child, then they're able to really gain influence or power or control over the child through a through a, a long and usually slow process we actually call grooming in the counseling field where the perpetrator spends time with the child and with the family to have that ongoing access and then within my own caseload I will say um, it's it's very frequent that the abuser is actually um, a close relative so whether a father an uncle grandfather um, and obviously they have a lot of access to those children as well. What does the grooming process look like to an outsider? How, how might we be able to identify when grooming is going on? Sure. Um, so one of the biggest and probably I mean, most um, early on in the process, red flags would be an adult or even an older, an older child who is looking to sexually abuse a younger child, essentially picking out a child and starting to pay very special attention to that child, maybe making that child feel um, special or bringing gifts to the child or having one-on-one experiences with the child and to basically continue this almost systematic desensitization of the child um, of that ongoing intimacy and crossing eventually crossing um, physical boundaries with the child. But first there's a long groundwork of emotional intimacy that takes place first. And so across the board, 100% of my clients come to us and they are fully emotionally bonded to their abuser. So that's, wow. that's one of the primary issues that, um, of these kids when they come in. And that's why we use this trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy to really address these lies that they've been taught to believe about themselves, about who they are, about what real love is, what real intimacy is, um, and really starting to break that down from that bare level of what does an actual relationship look like. How do those abusers know to do this process? That is a great question. Um, so there is such, there's no simple answer to that. You know, all human beings, of course, are very complex. <laughs> they have their own hurts, baggage that they're carrying, maybe abuse that they've experienced or violence that they've witnessed. Um, and so... You know, there's no one prototype abuser that we can just, you know, plug into a program and recognize somehow because it really is different. But for whatever reason, abusers have a have um, some sort of sexual desire or need that they believe that can be met from a child. And so one of the common threads throughout my caseload is these children as they start to disclose um, the details of the abuse that they experienced often for, for years and years, 
and above 90% of my caseload, I would say um, exposure to pornography was a part of the grooming process. So the abuser, it sounds like, and obviously I'm not working with the abuser directly, but it just through the lens of the child, the abuser very frequently has an addiction. I would call it an addiction to pornography, to child pornography. And that often led to acting out with the child. So the role of pornography is, is pretty pervasive, um, at least within my own caseload, as so far you, as influencing the grooming process. So you'd probably applaud, uh, recently at the Catholic University of America, uh, a student group brought to the university asking them to block porn on all the computers of the university. Oh, that is awesome. That makes me want to just stand up and cheer. That's amazing. Yeah, you'd like to think something like that would would even get attention of the public health um, advisors and policymakers that something as simple as curtailing pornography use could hopefully prevent child sexual abuse. Is there a certain yeah. type of pornography that they were looking at, or was it all types? Um, I believe it was all types, that, at least that I have heard, and that's as described by children as what as far as what they were shown um and so i don't know data i'd be very interested to know data on what types if it was you know extensively child pornography or other types of hardcore or violent pornography but we do know across the board all pornography involves the you know domineering and exertion of inappropriate power over someone else and basically turning them into a utility to use and dehumanizing them and that's essentially what happens to every single one of the kids in my caseload now, to clarify, you primarily have worked with prepubescent children. Is that correct? Right. That's Very good. Correct. And and that's who we really want to focus on. Isn't this Child Abuse Protection Month? It is. April is Child Abuse Protection Month. Yes. Absolutely. So we are here. So I'm curious, what what do the perpetrators supposedly get out of this as a benefit? What's their perceived benefit that drives this? Um, again, so I don't, so not having worked directly with perpetrators, right. but right. what it seems like is essentially sexual gratification. So taking children, sexualizing them, training them in how to do sexual acts, teaching them how to do sexual acts, um, orchestrating, you know, frequent scenarios where they are alone with the abuser and then acting those acts acting um, out sexually with the child. And so it, it appears as though it would be sexual gratification. There may be also some level of power and control or just exertion of that sort of influence that does some sort of makes them feel powerful or in control or I don't know, but that's probably the common thread is just sexual gratification of the abuser. So Margaret, are there some typical kind of profiles of perpetrators um, unfortunately, I've, I feel, I believe I've seen it all. Um, one of the most startling things for me coming into this field was the frequency. And I would say my toughest cases that I had were where, whether it was an eight year old boy, an 11 year old girl, but they were sexually abused by their biological fathers from, for as long as they can remember. And I've had that hap I've had at least two or three other cases where that was this case that was um, the perpetrator was the biological father. So that all the way to an older sister's husband to a live-in boyfriend is also very a frequent um, statistic. Essentially, if in my own experience, if there's an adult male or even an older post-pubescent male who has this frequent exposure to a child, that is the common scenario because most abuse occurs in the home of the child or in the home of the perpetrator most of the time. So I think I remember you saying that you've never dealt with a case where the perpetrator was not a male. Is that correct? Correct. And that is my own, ex I, I know it does occur of women abusing or, and we don't, we, we don't call this uh, demographic perpetrators, but of um, young girls, so of children female children who have perpetrated um, sexual abuse um, against a younger child, whether female or male. And those kids often came in because they were sexually abused and they were sexually acting out on a younger child. What risk factors should we know about that can make it easier for somebody to commit child sexual abuse? 
Um, definitely just one-on-one isolated time with an adult and a child or with an older child and a younger child. Really, it's the exposure, um, the isolated time where that perpetrator has the time to build the trust of the child in them to develop an emotional relationship to then create that tie and that bond that then enables them to perpetrate sexual abuse and the child and make the child not disclose through ongoing manipulation, emotional control, etc. So, Margaret, we're going to take a quick break uh, for our listeners here on Dr. Doctor and be right back with more from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor returning to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and today we have Margaret Rogers talking to us about what to watch for, especially being this is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month for children, what to watch for to help prevent this. And so, Margaret, I wanted to ask you a little bit more. We, we use this phrase grooming. The perpetrator would groom the victim. Can you explain a little bit more of what grooming is, what that looks like, so maybe we could identify it when it's happening? Absolutely. So very typically when a child comes into our office, there is a common pattern of what we would probably call just internalized ideas about themselves that these children have. And so that helps illustrate this process of grooming because essentially when we say grooming, we're talking about someone who has some level of power or control over somebody else exerting that power control to get what they want. And in child sexual abuse, it looks like a perpetrator developing an emotional bond with a child and eventually crossing physical boundaries and then getting to a place where the child feels that they could never tell because it's the groomer has taught them to believe that it, it was all their fault to begin with and that they wanted it to happen. And so what we see when kids come into our, the office and, you know, they're sitting across from us, we first we start talking about just statistics about child sexual abuse and try and help them understand that they're not the first person this has ever happened to. And then what we see with these children is this internal dialogue of they are still emotionally bonded to their abuser. Um, they believe that the activity that happened, the sexual activity and behavior, is actually normal. And then they also have very deeply internalized that the abuse that did happen was their own fault. Um, and that if they tell, it will ruin the life of the perpetrator who they care deeply about, most typically. And they also believe that they are bad, that if they were good, the abuser would have never abused them. But because they are bad, they deserve to be abused. And that is why they are here. So you can you can see even in that and even in this walkthrough, it's conflicting, right? They, they have an emotional relationship and attachment to the abuser, but they also believe that they are bad. And so that's sort of, in essence, what, what the perpetrator is, is trying to have happen. It's this paradox where the child feels trapped, that they feel like they cannot tell because it was their fault, and because they love the abuser and don't want them to get in trouble. Man, that's, it's so scary to think about imagining trying to grapple with this as a child, you know, it doesn't make even any sense for adults, but to have these kind of internal feelings, it, it's understandable why it's so hard for kids to come forward. How, how long does it take for you when you're working with a child to get them to bring out some of this information? Um, that definitely depends on the child, like on, on their temperament, on their personality, on the extent of abuse that they experience, and then also how they responded to that abuse. We teach the kids that the basic responses to any sort of trauma is fight, flight, or freeze. And so based on how these kids reacted to the trauma that they experienced, often it takes weeks and weeks, sometimes months, just to sort of develop a rapport and a relationship with the child where they feel that they can trust you enough that they can they can tell you what happened. Because we get kids with a police report and they've already been interviewed by a child protection team. But often we that's maybe covered about 2% of the abuse that actually happened, and it really takes weeks and weeks um, for the story to come out and for the child to, to trust you enough to tell you, you know, every level of detail of the abuse that they experienced. So most of these children did not come to you because they reported it. It's because someone else found it. Is that right? Right. So sometimes a child maybe disclosed to a family member, um, a couple of cases occurred where um, a child disclosed to a friend at school. For example, 
a child who maybe was being abused by their own biological father had no idea that behavior was abnormal. Oh. And then they have a sexual abuse awareness video in sixth grade. And that's the moment when a client learns that's me. That's what's been happening my whole life. Oh, and I see. now what do I do? They have an mm -hmm. altered sense of normal. Well, I exactly. had something happen to me when I was 17 between my junior and senior year of high school. I sought out this uh, high school government teacher to help me with some mock legisl legislation I was writing. And since it was summer, I rode my bike over to his home. He helped me with the draft of my bill. And then, as I'm about to leave, he gave me this unusual comic book, for last, lack of a better word. It had instructions for using a condom. And he told me to let him know if I had any questions about it but to read through it. I just remember barely touching this thing and giving it back to him saying, I'm not interested. And then I left and I rode my bike home wondering what in the world just happened here. But I couldn't really process it and I didn't talk to anybody about it. I still years later can't figure out why I didn't. And later on mm -hmm. when he was taken to court for abuse of some boys in our town, uh, most people in the community and other teachers, my parents among them, refused to believe that it was true, even though I had seen even this aspect of it. So what does this anecdote illustrate about barriers to stopping these people? Sure. Sure. So across, and so you were 17, and, and, um, and I've had clients who, you know, we take kids up until they're age 18, and, and across the board, my youngest client was four oldest was 18. Across the board, every single person comes in believing whatever happened was their fault. And so they basically internalized this sense of shame, whether the actual abuse occurred because they were taught to believe they wanted it to happen, or because they felt such a sense of shame when it happened that they felt they couldn't disclose. And then they blamed themselves for not disclosing. So that's why it was their fault. So the same sort of thing where, like what you experienced, you probably didn't go home and say, guess what, mom, this really weird <laughs> thing right. happened. Because it, was, because it was such probably such a took you off guard. It felt so inappropriate. It felt so wrong, so weird. And then for younger children who just developmentally are in such a more egocentric worldview, they think, you know, they think the whole world revolves around them. So if abuse is perpetrated on them, the number one thing they think is, well, of course it's my fault. I, I, I should have stopped it, and I didn't, you know, even though I'm six, they're not thinking that. They think that I should have stopped it, and I didn't, so I wanted it to happen, so it's all my fault. And I love the abuser, and I don't want them to go to jail. So it's this whole conglomeration of, of just um, warped idea of who they are, of why they're here, what their bodies are for, and so that's taught from this young age. And I will say, I know it's, it's all doom and gloom, but the beauty of this trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy that I've witnessed in my, in, in our office is just with time and care and attention to these lies that these children have believed and, and very gently and slowly confronting these lies over time, children come into the office, believing it's their fault. They walk out of the office several months later, knowing it was the abuser's fault, knowing that they were an innocent child who did not deserve for this to happen, knowing that they are good, that their bodies are good, knowing that they have a greater purpose and that they're not defined by trauma that happened to them when they were young. And so I, I just, just as a, as a note, and you know, if any listener has experienced abuse themselves, whether as a child or as a teenager, maybe they've never even talked about it or disclosed it to anybody, but that there is hope and healing. And I mean, ultimately our healer is Jesus Christ. And, and it's beautiful that there are counselors, there are people out in the world who just have this heart and this yearning to meet people in that place of darkness and just to speak the truth to them there. And that's what we get to do with these kids who come to our office. So it's the worst thing, but it can turn into a very beautiful thing with time and care and attention to these kids who ultimately can become thriving survivors and live full, abundant lives. You know, Margaret, working with these kids, it, it makes me wonder... Why do some of these cases of sexual abuse come come out when they're when they're young, but then others only come out decades later? You know, what can we do to help bring to light some of these things so that the victims can get closure sooner? Um, one important thing, um, and I believe the statistic, something about sixty percent of children do disclose the abuse that they experience as a child. They disclose it when they are children, but often the first person they disclose it to doesn't believe them. So like you said with, or in the example um, for that Tom was talking about with, you know, talking even that his parents didn't believe and 
you know, that the town didn't believe, even though children came forward. And that just happened so frequently because so often, you know, it's someone you know, you think you know, you, you trust, who's a part of the community. And so very often when children do disclose, they're either not believed or they're told to not talk about it ever again. That's been a frequent response of, you know, family members. Um, and so that internalized shame and, um, you know, just this fear that, you know, everyone's going to think differently of me, that somehow I must have brought this on myself, keeps that, that you know, oppressive silence on these children. They very often carry it through adulthood because I will say that so we have a sister organization that, that takes um, adults who are sexually assaulted or victimized, whether as adults or children. And that's a, that's a very large population of people as well. Sometimes people in their 60s, 70s, 80s coming to disclose abuse they experienced as a 14-year-old. And so what we can do is to believe people when they disclose, to take action, and, um, and just to, to help defeat this you know, culture of silence about horrific things that happen to young children. You know, Margaret, based on the statistics, one in 10 children will be sexually abused. We probably come into contact with children who are going to be victims or have been or undergoing uh, abuse at that time. Are there any signs that we should look for, especially if we work in medicine and healthcare, that might tip off the fact that children may be victims? Sure. So common red flags, especially people in the medical field, would be um, um, any sort of bruising or bleeding or any um, redness or just, you know, talking about an issue with genitalia, um, um, even on a routine exam with a child. Um, And even in in an office setting, if there's an adult present who appears to be domineering, you know, overly close, not letting the child alone, not letting the child speak, um, because all my own clients, you know, they regularly saw their physicians and oftentimes a family member was the abuser and the family member would take the child to their doctor's appointments. And so we know, like you're saying, just statistically speaking, this probably occurs. And so those are sort of the external signs, but more frequently, um, children expressing maybe any sort of change in behavior, um, weight or academic performance, these sudden shifts in what used to be normal um, are also red flags. So whether a child's grades are suddenly dropping, they're complaining about constant stomach pain or feeling worried all the time. Bedwetting is a big one, uh, some sort of regression hmm. developmentally. Self-harm, so whether a child kind of internalizes the pain they're experiencing and starts harming themselves or, you know, abnormal aggression acting out on someone else. So ex- externalizing the pain and trauma that they're experiencing. And then finally, a big, a big red flag would be basically evidence of over-sexualization of a child, that they're familiar with sexual acts that no child that age should should know about, and they talk about it or they indicate that they have done it or anything like that. And that's been a red flag caught in schools when children are bantering with friends and talk about something and a teacher overhears or a child reports it. Sometimes we get those children into our office as well because that's a huge red flag. Either this child is exposed to pornography, is watching it on their own, maybe they've actually been sexually abused, or an abuser is showing them pornography. So those are big indicators. Margaret, this is outstanding. We want to take one more break, and after the break, we want to discuss what this cognitive behavioral therapy is, and maybe even talk about a story of uh, of a patient anonymously. But uh, we'll be back with a little more after the break on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio show of the Catholic Medical Association, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And today, we've been having a a very powerful discussion about child sexual abuse, and Tom has an aptly chosen trivia question that we are going to hear the answer to. Yes, in 2002, when the Catholic Church learned about uh, the, the heinous actions of certain priests, the most notorious one was Monsignor John Gagan. Uh, in Boston. And it was actually 18 years earlier, 1984, that a certain auxiliary bishop in Boston warned Archbishop Bernard Law not to send him to another parish because of, quote, his history of homosexual involvement with young boys, end quote. Within two months, this auxiliary was sent to be bishop of a diocese in the Midwest. Who was that bishop? And Andrew's got a Cheshire cat grin on the other side. You know, it's it's way out there in the boondocks in Indiana. 
Yep. It yeah, w- a place we all know and love. It was our previous uh, bishop, uh, John Darcy. He actually warned the archbishop about this monsignor. Unfortunately, his warning was not heated, uh, and he was able to go on and, um, and and horribly treat so many more boys. But Bishop John Darcy, our, our uh, beloved former bishop, may he rest in peace. Now back to Margaret Rogers. And Margaret, I know that you put together kind of a sanitized scenario so we can't identify who the person is, but give us a typical story of one of these patients you've treated. Sure. Um, So one young boy came to us when he was eight, and he and his family had been involved in the state system prior. So they'd had caseworkers going out to their house, um, just suspicion of neglect or abuse occurring. And um, after years of never having evidence, finally had enough um, to bring the kids in for um, counseling. And what came out, and I, I was counseling this eight-year-old boy, and what came out is that he had been sexually abused by his biological father and mother for years. Both of them? And um, Yes. And oh. and that his siblings were also being abused. He had two older siblings. And so, um, and again, I, just to illustrate how frequently it is a family member. And so what happened was um, over weeks and months of, of, of educating this boy about child sexual abuse, talking about... Um, you know, the different lies that he identified that he, that he believed um, about himself, about what happened, about, you know, what love is, about what our bodies are for, and et cetera. Um, weeks and weeks and months um, that we finally got to a point, and, and I can talk more about this later when we talk about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, we got to a point where he had finally written his whole narrative, his, what we call the trauma narrative, about, you know, just some of the what we call the first time, the worst time, the last time of the abuse that he experienced. And so all those details were out. And then his, um, his grandma um, on a different side of the other side of the family um, came in and and was his caregiver at the time. And, um, and that we sat in the room. And again, this is part of our therapy. And he read his trauma narrative to his grandma. And, um, you know, the grandma didn't know it was occurring. And it was, but we prepped, we prepped her prior, but you know, it's, it's hard for her to hear as well. But there was this amazing moment where this boy gets to a part in his narrative that was very hard for him to disclose. And he put his head down and just started crying and his grandmother started crying as well. And, but there's this moment where he finished reading his narrative and his grandmother just looked him in the eyes and just said, you know, I, I love you so much. I love you so much. None of this was your fault and everything is going to be okay. And it's just this beautiful moment where, and that's, and that's sort of the, one of the goals of this therapy is, is getting all of the details out into the light, that it's not something this child is just carrying inside anymore, and that a loved one, someone they trust, hears every detail and they can look them in the eyes and say, I love you and it is okay and none of this was your fault and you are so brave for telling and I'm so proud of you. And so that is sort of the goal in therapy is that, is bringing this other, you know, safe identified family member into the into the story, so that this child can then ultimately end therapy with us and then leave having this ally, this family member who will continue to walk with them as they, you know, continue to journey with the abuse that they experience and also just trying to move on and lead lead a normal and healthy life thereafter. Man, that that is a powerful story, and I can appreciate how that would help bring healing to the victim. You know, you, you've been referencing the cognitive behavioral therapy um, mode of treatment. Can, can you explain to us what that is, what that looks like, and, and how it helps the victims? Sure. So this is an evidence-based theory um, that was originally developed to treat children who experience sexual abuse. Um, it's very effective for all types of post-traumatic stress disorder in children, and so any type of trauma um, it can be used effectively um, for those um, that demographic, and so it's um, it, there are several steps involved. And in, in my organization at the Children's Advocacy Center um, of Florida, basically what our curriculum would look like is the three main main points that we go through over time with our clients is psychoeducation, so teaching children about the statistics, how frequently it, this occurs, really giving a child a chance to just understand 
you know, this many girls are abused, this many boys are abused. This, these are the, the number of children who ever disclose or come forward. And, and taking this picture that helps the child know that they're not alone, that there are um, so many people that this has happened to and so many people who have gone on to, to experience, you know, a, a healthy, vibrant life thereafter. And part of that psychoeducation is to teach children about how people automatically respond to trauma. So at children or adults, we teach them that people, you know, fight, fight back. They there's flight where they run away or they freeze, which is that which is where you basically are just desensitize yourself to what is happening, kind of go away in your head. Some children truly don't remember blocks of the abuse that they experienced because they just um, essentially were able to tune out effect so effectively that they don't actually don't remember. So really helping children understand their natural reaction because a huge part of that. Um, the, the trauma is children believing that it was their fault because they should have fought back or they should have gotten away. But so often children freeze. And so being able to explain to them, here's what happened. Here's what happens when children experience abuse. And then in the therapy, we move into what's called cognitive coping and reprocessing, which is essentially where you're, you go through lists of just I statements that are most commonly brought up from children when they are sexually abused, such as I should have told sooner. It's all my fault because I am bad. If I hadn't um, loved the abuser, this wouldn't have happened. No one will ever, ever love me or want to marry me in the future if they find out what happened to me. So all these sort of statements, and we have children identify, you know, which one, which one do you relate to? And then eventually we come back to these statements and help these children basically correct them. Like, it wasn't my fault because I am a child and, um, and I'm not responsible for what someone else does. Or, you know, and going through these statements and correcting them. And for these children, it's a chance to really start to confront these lies that have really taken root in their hearts and in their minds and affecting every aspect of their lives. And then finally, the other major component is writing a trauma narrative where these children disclose every single detail that they can remember of the abuse that they experienced, from the color of the walls in the room to what the abuser said, what they said, what they were thinking and feeling at the time, getting it all out on paper so that their therapist can sit across the table from them, look them in the eye and say, you are so brave for talking about this. I'm so proud of you. This was not your fault. Do you see how this wasn't your fault? Do you see how this person was abusing power or control or influence they had over you? And just really every, in every single moment, getting to speak truth into these areas of lies and helping the child write it out and then eventually share it with a loved one. So it's just bringing all these things in the dark to the light. That is sort of the goal of this of this um, form of therapy. So CBT is actually used in a, a wide variety of areas, commonly with uh, anxiety. It, it really is correcting faulty thought processes or, or thought patterns or uh, correcting lies. Right, exactly. Margaret, we've got about uh, three minutes or, or less. What are the most important things that you want the audience to know about this topic? Sure. I know this topic is it's hard to think about and hear about, and it's hard. It's easy to feel helpless or hopeless um, about preventing um, the abuse of whether our own children or people we know and love, family members. And um, and one thing that I think is so important for all of us, especially parents and caregivers, to know is that it's just so vital that we teach children what their bodies are for. Ah. If we are not explaining to children who they are, why they are here, and the purpose, the beautiful gift of their bodies, how God created them um, with a special body part so that one day they can, they can become mommies and daddies. You know, if that's the vocation that God is calling them to. And talking about how you know, their genitalia is special and it's private and, and, it, and it's just it's not to be shared with anybody else. That is not what it is for. So essentially teaching kids you know, in age-appropriate language that their bodies are ultimately used for the glory of God. And so if someone else wants to use it or touch them or make them feel yucky or uncomfortable, that is bad. That person is unsafe and tell mommy or daddy right away. And it's never your fault. It's, you know, it would never be your fault that to know that mommy and daddy love you no matter what. And you can always tell mommy and daddy if you ever feel unsafe because no one should ever touch your private areas. Anything covered by a swimsuit should never be touched by anybody. And just, and just really clarifying, you know, if, if we can know what we're for and why we're here and that God loves us and created us for a purpose. And then if we teach children that true narrative of who they are, 
any other narrative presented to them will appear will will um be evident for you know the lie and the the um potential danger it is and so we can't inoculate children we can't you know lock them up in a closet and never let them be a family member or go to a friend's house or anything like that but if we teach them who they are and what they are for um what their bodies are for we can help protect the child so that if they encounter a scenario that that red flag goes up and that they leave immediately and tell you immediately and who should Um, they call who should parents call if they suspect something Sure. Um, the hotline call, and again, you don't. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, a certainty. I mean, even if you just have a suspicion that abuse is occurring, um, the hotline call. Let's see the hotline number. I believe in Indiana, it's 800-800-5556. And it can be looked up um, online. And a good website is D. Two L, the number two dot org. Margaret, you have been a wonderful guest here during Child Abuse Prevention and Awareness Month. But we want to thank also all our listeners for coming to listen to the official radio program and podcast of the CMA, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for Dr. Doctor. And until then, I'm Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.